Uh, for those of you who may be new here today, we've been preaching through a series on the life of David, living, learning to live out of God's grace for his glory. So before I jump into reading our scripture passage for today, uh, I need to catch, we need to catch up with David a little bit. So we're not going to be able to cover everything. So um, what's happened since our last sermon? Uh, well, in our last sermon, we saw that Saul and Jonathan had died, seemingly paving the way for David to come to the throne. But it doesn't turn out to be that simple. A couple of Saul's relatives are still at large. But after some complicated political intrigues, during which all of Saul's relatives end up murdered, uh, David is able to consolidate his hold on power. The most important event, though, that happens is that David captures a little city called Jerusalem and makes it his new capital. And this city will turn out to be one of the major characters in the story going forward. David sets up shop in Jerusalem, and with God's help, he wins a couple of major battles against the Philistines. So this all sets the scene for our chapter. Now that David has some security, he seeks to bring the Ark of God up into this new city of Jerusalem. So if you'll uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel 6 in the Pew Bibles, that's page 258. 2 Samuel 6, let's pay attention to the reading of God's Word. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, 
Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage, but we trust you that you can bless us by your word, and so we, seek, we ask that you would open it to us by your Spirit's power this morning that we might be blessed in the study of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a difficult passage, isn't it? I think it's important to acknowledge that here at the beginning. It ought to have been such a happy passage. I mean, there is joy and singing and dancing. It should be the crowning moment of David's rise to power. But this episode is punctuated by two depressing and alarming episodes. And how God acts in this passage may even seem strange and scary and unfair. But I do believe that there is blessing hidden in this passage too. Uh, David wants to bring the ark into the midst of his new capital so that it can become the center of Israel's worship once again. The ark has been sidelined off at um, the house of Abinadab for so long. So our passage today is all about worship. But it's not just about worship. It's also about what goes wrong with worship. So in our sermon today, we're going to see two problems that prevent our worship. Number one, the problem of disobedience. And number two, the problem of contempt. Problem of disobedience and the problem of contempt. And then we're going to turn in our third point to see how David's worship points us forward to Jesus' worship. Okay, so point one. The problem of disobedience hinders our worship. Our passage begins with joy and celebration. David is bringing up the ark. Okay, so what's the ark? Well, the ark was this box that Moses built, uh, made of wood and overlaid with gold, which represented the footstool of God's throne. But it was also a mobile throne that could be moved from place to place. So we could also think of that as a chariot, uh, the mobile throne of the king. 
Um, it was carried by the Levites and would go out into battle with the people, representing God's presence with them. It's perhaps not entirely different from what other nations would do, where they would bring out an idol with them uh, to represent the God coming to help them in battle. With the crucial difference that the ark, God's throne with the cherubim, doesn't have an idol. There's just empty space where the idol would be. Because, of course, Israel's God has no visible form. We met this ark already in 1 Samuel 4-7. to uh, There the Israelites try to use it sort of like a talisman to defeat the Philistines, even though they've been flagrantly disobeying what God has commanded. And as a result, the ark doesn't help them at all. Rather, God allows the ark to be captured by the Philistines. And uh, however, after a bunch of plagues and the ark toppling the idols of the Philistines, they decide they've had about enough of that, and they send the ark back. They return it on a cart pulled by oxen, who miraculously, without any human being guiding them, take the ark right back to Israel, where it gets laid up with this Aminadab guy, and it's been sticking with him ever since. And now David wants to restore it to the center of Israel's life in this new capital. David gathers the whole people together with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. We're not sure if we're translating all of those instruments correctly, but clearly there's instruments of every kind. It was a picture of joy and jubilation, but then disaster strikes. The ark wobbles. Uzzah reaches out his hand to take hold of it, and he's struck dead. All in a moment, the celebration is over, and David's left to wonder if he'll ever get to see God dwell with his people. So what happened? Why does Uzzah die? And the first and simplest answer we could give is he touches the ark. The ark was a holy object where God was present, and if mishandled, it could be deadly. Mary read earlier the instructions for transporting the ark in Numbers 4, which say that the ark needs to be carefully wrapped and carried by specially designated Levites from the house of Kohath. They're to be careful not to touch the holy things, lest they die. Exactly none of these instructions are being followed, followed here. Rather, the ark is loaded on a wagon, the method that the Philistines had used when they sent it back. The moment when Uzzah reaches out to grab the ark and steady it is just the climactic moment in a pattern of complete disregard for God's commandments about how the ark was to be transported. So Uzzah dies because the rules for transporting the ark have not been followed. But that, that raises a deeper question, doesn't it? Why, why is the ark so dangerous in the first place? Well, the answer to this is it's because where it is a place where God is present. The presence of God cannot tolerate human sin. The Bible teaches that all human sin deserves the penalty of death. That's why, if you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, God said the day they ate of the forbidden tree, they would surely die. And yet, if you remember the story, you know that the death sentence was suspended for a time. Instead of being immediately executed, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. 
That garden was the place where God had been present with them. You see, humans are allowed a reprieve from death at the cost of no longer dwelling with God in His presence. And there's a way we can see the whole story of the Bible as addressed at this dilemma. How can God be present with sinful people? When God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and chose them as as His people, it meant that He was going to come dwell with them. It was an attempt to solve this problem. The people were going to experience God's presence, something that had been lost ever since Adam and Eve. And yet there were some problems with this arrangement. When God's people stood before him on the mountain, God's presence was terrifying. And the continual sin of the people led to the outbreaking of God's wrath against them. And so we have the tabernacle, the solution to this problem where God will dwell with his people, but his presence will be shielded by the layers of the tabernacle with regular sacrifices offered to cleanse the impurity of sin and a whole troop of Levites to guard the boundary of the tabernacle and make sure nothing unholy crosses into it. So, Uzzah dies because God's presence cannot tolerate human sin. But there's one even deeper question we need to ask here. Why does God take human sin so seriously? And the answer to this has to be that he's a very different God than the image of him we tend to construct in our imaginations. He's a God who bursts out. The Hebrew word perez, which we have in this chapter, means to burst out or break out. And, And this same word has shown up in the previous chapter where it was good news for Israel. Um, When David seeks God's help to defeat the Philistines, we hear in chapter 5, verse 20, David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim, and Baal Perazim would mean the master of breaking out. God is powerful. And that power is bad news for anybody who opposes and attacks the people of Israel. But also, God's power isn't simply at Israel's disposal. It can't just be manipulated by them at will. They cannot control God. This was the problem that had happened before with the ark. In the previous story, Israel thought that just by bringing the ark with them, they could kind of twist God's arm into helping them in battle. And I wonder if something similar is happening here. I wonder if the carelessness in dealing with the ark, the negligent disobedience, reflects a certain casualness that David and the sons of Abinadab have slipped into. They're excited about God. They enjoy praising him, but they approach him without the respect or reverence due to him. And maybe they feel a little bit like they can control him. You know, in that moment when Uzzah grabs the ark, it's an object for him which needs human protection, despite the fact that the ark had made it all the way home on a cart with oxen in the previous story without any human help. This very act of grasping the ark in his his hand, literally manipulating it, is just a symbolic expression of an attitude towards God that Israel had repeatedly slipped into, that God could be controlled and manipulated. 
But God is a God who bursts out, like a flood or an earthquake or a thunderstorm or another aspect of nature that humans can't control. God can't be manipulated. He can't be controlled. He's a God who's a lot bigger than we can fathom, and he can't be conformed to the scripts that we write for him. And he often doesn't behave the way that we think that he should. I wonder if this is a difficult side of God for you. I think it is for a lot of people. And it's difficult for David in this moment. Notice he has two emotional responses. David was angry, and David was afraid. Notice that even the man after God's own heart gets angry at God and is afraid of God. Maybe that describes your religious experience here this morning. Maybe you hear all these Christians talking about their peaceful, quiet times with the Lord, or their calm experiences of His presence, or their abundant joy in God, and you think, boy, for me, I want to wrestle God. It's more like I want to get in a fight with Him. Or maybe you're just afraid of Him. You want to run away from Him. If that is you this morning, there's a ton of faithful saints in the Bible who have been where you are. Sometimes I think we don't emphasize that enough. I mean, we want people to get to a place where they they aren't angry at God, where they aren't afraid of God, and rightly so. I mean, it would be great for everybody to be there, but maybe we don't always make room for the fact that, biblically speaking, it can take a lot of wrestling to get to that place. And that wrestling itself can be part of how we deal with God in a faithful way. It's really only through faith that someone can stick it out with God and wrestle with him when they find it difficult rather than just walking away. Back to David, though. David is paralyzed in his anger and fear. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And in a context where God's presence is so associated with the ark, this is tantamount to saying, I don't know if a close relationship with God is possible for me anymore. Seems like David is ready to give up. His encounter with God's wrath has led him to doubt whether God will be a God of grace to him any longer. But this is where Obed-Edom comes in. They stash the ark with this guy named Obed-Edom. Boy, I wonder how he got that job. I, I wouldn't have been lining up for it. But we're told that the Lord blesses Obed-Edom and all of his house in the presence of the ark. And when David sees this blessing, his faith is revived. He remembers that God is a God who brings blessing, despite the wrath our sins deserve. And so he comes to worship God again. Only this time, notice the ark is not on an ox cart, but it's carried by people, presumably the Levites. Our passage doesn't focus on this as much, but the author of Chronicles definitely does, because The chronicler was super into Levites and his retelling of the story. He tells us all about the Levites. What what the author of Samuel focuses on more, though, is the sacrifices that are offered. After they walk six steps, they offer sacrifices. And this, I think, shows a deeper focus on the danger of human sin in carrying the ark and the need for God's help, divine assistance in this task. There's still joy, dancing, and shouting, But there's also a new reverence, a recognition of what an awesome and tremendous thing it is to come into the presence 
of God. And there's an application here for our worship this morning. There's a warning that worship isn't just about our feelings and our best intentions. Now, don't get me wrong. Worship is about our feelings and intentions. Those are still important. So in no way does this passage condemn joy and dancing and worship. If anything, that's presented as the norm, which is something we Presbyterians might want to think about since we don't tend to be the most dancey all the time. But joy and good intentions are no substitute for obedience. And the kind of disobedience called out here, it's not flagrant disobedience, actively defying something uh, in the face of God telling you what to do. It's really more a sort of negligence, ignoring, forgetting, failing to inquire into how God wants us to worship him. Our passage shows us that worshiping God is serious business. It's not just an expression of our own desires, but rather seeking to conform ourselves to God's will. Now, this is one of the reasons why we Presbyterians take it so seriously how we worship God in the gathered assembly of the saints on the Lord's Day. We focus a lot on the biblical authorization for what we do here, and which is a legitimate lesson to take from this passage. But it's also important to see how the New Testament shifts our focus from precisely how rituals are to be performed towards loving our neighbor. And if we think that the call to obey God and worship only applies to matters of what kind of order of worship we should have on Sunday morning, then we'd be ignoring all of these passages where Paul tells the Corinthians that because they have shamed and excluded their brothers and sisters, some of them have died. Or uh, where he tells husbands that if they don't live in an understanding way with their wives, their prayers will be hindered. Uh, or James, where he says that if we don't help the widows and the orphans and the poor, then our religion is worthless. And then there's Jesus, too. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. We no longer have an ark to attend to exactly as God commands, but we have something much higher, our relationship with our neighbor. All our strong emotions and loud singing are completely worthless without love for other people. And perhaps, this is, perhaps this is the warning the Spirit wants us to take away from this passage today. Okay, so that's Point one, the problem of disobedience hinders our worship. Point two, the problem of contempt hinders our worship. Verse 15 tells us that all Israel turns out to worship God with David, but there's at least one person who's not actually in attendance. In verse 16, we find Michael, the daughter of Saul, literally looking down on David from her window like Squidward watching the antics of Patrick and Spongebob. Now, a lot has happened with Michael since we last saw her. Uh, we need to catch up with Michael a bit, too. If you remember, she's Saul's daughter, who is married to David. And much like her brother Jonathan, she sides with David, not Saul, and helps David escape. But things get rough for her from there. First of all, her father remarries her to another man. 
Meanwhile, David's off in the wilderness, uh, during which time he marries two other women, by the way. Then her father and brother die, and David takes over. As part of one of the political deals David makes coming to power, uh, he bargains to get his wife back. I mean, here's the language David actually use, uses. Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And that, that's a little transactional. It's not, not the most loving language. And the, the author goes out of our way to show us, by contrast, how much her new husband cares for her. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. After this, by the way, uh, the narrator moves on to tell us that David acquires even more wives and concubines. Now, this is all massively messed up. I, I can't imagine what it was like for Michael to go through this. She was separated by her father from a man that she loved deeply. She lives with another man she didn't choose, but who does love and care for her in a way that we never hear it said that David does, by the way. And then she's uprooted again to become just one of David's many wives. I think this is important context for where her heart is at. I'm not just going to let David off the hook for this whole situation. I don't think the story wants us to. Deuteronomy 17 says the king isn't supposed to have many wives. I think that's a background theme for this whole story, that this is not good. At the same time, Michael's contempt for David's worship reveals some things about her own heart, which are not right, that the passage wants us to see. Michael, throughout the passage, is called the daughter of Saul, over and over. And this suggests that what's being revealed in her is something Saul-like. And I suggest the link is that she, like Saul, is very wrapped up with the honor-shame dynamics of how other people see her and her husband. In verse 16, we hear that she despised David in her heart. She has this contempt for him. This is shame language. And she starts off her sarcastic words in uh, verse, uh, she, in her, her speech to David with mentioning the concept of honor, how the king of Israel honored himself today. In all her words, she talks entirely about what other people will think, not what about God will think. David has humiliated himself before the female servants of his servants. Actually, I think this is a place where we should translate slaves, the female slaves of his servants. Michael uses both classism and sexism in an attempt to shame David. Dancing around like that is something slaves do, not the king. Dancing around like that is something women do, not men. Incidentally, it is predominantly women that we find dancing in the Bible uh, and it was, uh, it was traditional for the women to sing and dance in the procession of a victorious king returning from war. These are the women who sang David's praises, praises over his battle victories all the way back in 1 Samuel, the same songs that made Saul jealous of David. But now the king who's coming into the city is God, and I think Michael is suggesting David is one of God's women dancing before him. Notice, by the way, that this sexist comment kind of undermines the ideal of verse 19, which specifically mentions that both men and women participate together in the worship of God. 
Also, Michael is saying David is like a creep who exposes himself. Uh, we don't need to take this literally, as if, I think, as if the ephod David wore was somehow inappropriate. Rather, nakedness here is a metaphor for shameful conduct. But this comment about exposing himself to slave girls, it might be a jab at David's promiscuity with his many wives and concubines that he's collected. It might also reveal that, like Saul, Michael is jealous of David's proximity to these female slaves. David, however, answers that he was dancing before the Lord. He repeats that phrase twice in his answer. Michael is evaluating everything through honor and status before how other people see her. David cares only about how God sees things. And so he's happy to be seen as contemptible, to abase and humiliate himself before the Lord. And in fact, it's just those lowly slave women who will honor him for doing that. Now, as I mentioned before, Michael has reasons why she is bitter, understandable reasons. But she's still in control of how she reacts to them. And how she has reacted has left her unable to join the community of God's people in worship. She's responded to her issues with David with contempt for the worship of God. This is something to watch out for in ourselves as well. Now, I will say, some of us manage to have contempt for others' joyful worship, even without a story like Michael's in our past. We don't really have an excuse for it. And that's something we Presbyterians should be especially watchful for. We care a lot about worshiping God the right way. But that can become contempt for other people's worship. And we need to watch out for that. Some other of us maybe have more serious reasons in our past. Why? It is difficult for us to worship God, especially if we've had spiritual leaders in our lives that have betrayed us. I know worship can be especially difficult for pastors' wives sometimes when their pastors aren't living up to the calling God has for them. It can be a very difficult place to be in. Maybe others of us haven't experienced that kind of betrayal, but we have other kinds of pain and hurt in our lives. Even if they don't have to do with the church, they might be things we bring with us and carry into our relationships and conflict with other believers. Just because our sin is conditioned by pain doesn't mean it isn't still sin. I mean, just look at the way Michael responds by punching down at slave women in this passage. She finds someone lower on the totem pole that she can kick. I think the Spirit has this question as well for our hearts in this passage today. How are we responding to the ways we have been hurt? Are we responding by withdrawing from worship? Are we responding by reacting to others with contempt, seeking to shame them? Or are we bringing our hurt to God and seeking Him to heal it? We will miss out on the one thing our hearts need for healing if we react to our hurt by withdrawing from God. So that's the second point. Contempt can hinder our worship. But point three, David's worship and Jesus' worship. Now, despite his faults, David is an example of how to worship here. I'm willing to take him at his word that he has only God in mind. And that's something commendable for us to imitate, not to be worried about how other people are seeing us, but to care only about what God sees. But there's still a problem here. Take a look at verse 19. 
Then all the people departed, each to his house. And this is such a beautiful picture, isn't it? Here, all God's people, men and women, they've gathered together to rejoice in the Lord, to eat together, to fellowship together. And now they take the blessing of that worship they've experienced, and each one of them takes it home with them into their own particular homes. But then we hear, and David returned to bless his household. That's not going to go so well, is it? David's house will not be a place of peace and worship, but conflict. And the end of the passage focuses us on a fundamental brokenness in David's house that is never going to be fixed until the day of Michael's death. David, of course, bears a lot of blame for this. And really, David bears some responsibility for both of the deaths in our passage. He fails to supervise the carrying of the ark responsibly. And while Michael is certainly responsible for her part of what's going on in her own heart, David has done a lot to create these circumstances that she is responding to. The last verse tells us that Michael has no children until the day of her death. In some ways, this parallels Uzzah's death. There are two deaths in the passage. Only Michael's is one that lasts her whole life. It is, although it doesn't come right away, it's the last word in the passage. Her continued existence is in some sense a living death, shut up in a loveless marriage with no way to leave and no children she could focus on instead. One could read this childlessness as God's doing, but I think that would be a mistake. Uh, The narrator was not shy in 1 Samuel 1 about telling us that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, but the language here is more ambiguous. Isn't it more likely that it's David who rejected Michael from this point forward? After all, he has plenty of other wives and concubines. By the way, Michael's not even the last woman that David will shut up in this way. There's a group of concubines who meet the same fate in chapter 20. Shut up in David's house for political reasons. Like I said, David is at least partially responsible for both of the deaths mentioned in this passage. And this issue of brokenness in David's own house, the highly dysfunctional way that he runs his family, is only going to get bigger and bigger as the book goes on. We don't need to get into that all now. That's something that we'll see coming forward. Suffice it to say that David leaves us waiting for a greater king. And that is who we meet in Jesus. For our New Testament reading this week, I chose Jesus' cleansing of the temple. That's because we see Jesus' zeal for the right worship of God in this passage. And especially his bursting out against the perversion of that worship, the exploitation especially of the poor. Now, Jesus' admittedly aggressive behavior in this passage is sometimes used to justify ungodly violence. It's true. For the record, I don't think we're supposed to think that Jesus used the whip on people. I think the idea in John is that he drives out the cattle and he scatters the coins everywhere. Jesus is obstructing their ability to carry on their uh, ungodly trade. Still, the story does demonstrate that Jesus has this zeal that will not stand disrespect for God or hand-in-hand with his concern for God that will not respect oppression of his image bearers. Jesus is the God who bursts out 
against this sort of unholiness, which is no doubt why his teaching and that of his apostles emphasizes so much that if we fail to love others, it makes our worship of no value. But from there, the story takes a different turn. Right after this episode, Jesus says that if this temple is torn down, he will rebuild it in three days. And his hearers immediately don't understand what he's talking about. But John tells us he's talking about his own body. That's the temple. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of what the ark, the tabernacle, the temple pointed to. He is God's presence come in human flesh. But Jesus is going to solve the problem of God's presence with us in a very different way than David. He's a different kind of king, not one who leads by political power and machinations, not one who builds an earthly kingdom, but one who triumphs by dying on the cross. Jesus finally solves the problem of God's presence with sinners by taking the punishment for that sin upon himself, by receiving the breaking out of the Father's wrath upon himself, which we deserved. None of this now means that we serve a tame God or a God we can control. We still come before him in reverence and awe, but we have a much greater witness that this God has chosen to extend his grace to us in Christ. He's taken the punishment of his wrath upon himself, and that means that we can approach God in Christ with an assurance of his grace that could never be had under the old covenant. And that's why we're able to come before God and worship today. This is where the power is that can deal with the disobedience and contempt we may find in our own hearts. And if you're somebody who has a very difficult time with God's wrath, with God's breaking out, then in Christ you can find something like that blessing that came on Obed-Edom's house a gleam of blessing in the midst of darkness. If you're overwhelmed by your sin, if you're terrified by God, this is the place to come to find a support for your faith, an assurance of God's determination to bless his people. Christ's death and resurrection show that the problem of our sin separating us from God's presence will be overcome by God's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as the great and holy God, a God whom we're not worthy to come into your presence, but we come before you as well, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, aware that you have given him as a much better king than King David. We pray that you would purge out whatever is in our hearts that keeps us from worshiping you and from loving our neighbor. We pray that you would bring us to repentance over our sin, and we thank you for the forgiveness we find in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.